Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Greetings and peace. What's going on? This is Baraka Blue, and you're tuned into Path and Present Podcast. Been a minute. Uh, took a little hiatus, a little break with the podcasting. Not too long, but it's probably been a couple months. Um, I've been doing a little traveling. Been working on a few other projects. Um, but I'm happy to be back and happy to have another podcast for you. Um, this one is with Azhar Usman, who's a wonderful brother, and actually someone who we move in similar circles, and we have many, many uh, common friends, but we had never actually met in person until a few months ago at the Iman Artist Retreat. And, uh, you know, it was a beautiful meeting because it's one of those things where you, you know someone and love them and admire them and and have a connection with them for for years from afar, mutually, but you haven't actually met them in person. So when you finally have that meeting, it's always really profound. So in that uh, that weekend, after the artist retreat, we sat down and had this conversation. And uh, as many people know, Azhar is a is a celebrated comedian from Chicago, but. Um, He's also a very deep thinker and uh, reflective, philosophically minded, contemplative individual. So we talked about a wide range of things relating to comedy, spirituality, modernity, everything under the sun. So, inshallah, you dig it. Oh, I wanted to say before um, letting you have the podcast that... Uh, I've had a lot of really positive, beautiful feedback about the podcast, uh, and I appreciate it. Um, anybody who wants to give a comment, give any feedback, recommend a guest, um, you can do that. Uh, I mean, you can hit me up on Twitter, at Baraka Blue, um, like that, or Facebook. Um, and then, of course, you can comment on the our iTunes and our SoundCloud as well. So I'm always looking for, uh, you know, new guests, new good people, anybody. If you have any recommendations, people that you think would be good for the podcast, please do let me know. Um, and then lastly, please do support on Patreon. That's what allows me to set aside the time to do this on a regular basis, semi-regular basis. You like the podcast and you'd like it to be more consistent or just more frequent, really. Um, I would love to do that, and you can do that by supporting our Patreon, um, Patreon.com/slash Path and Present. You can find the link on the, the SoundCloud and the iTunes. But uh, I think we did about 17, 16 or seventeen podcasts in two thousand and seventeen, which is pretty dope. I mean, I don't know. I don't do math. <laughs> I, st- I stick to language arts. I skip math class. But, um, you know, that's like every three weeks. So that's pretty pretty good. We stepped it up from the year before doing it monthly. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I took basically the first couple months off of 2018 to work on a few other projects. But I'm back into it. So... Send us your love, send us your prayer, send us your support financially if you can, and send us your comments and your feedback. It's greatly appreciated. All right, y'all, one love. Peace.
thinking about the fact I was talking with Mo earlier about how like poetry and stand-up comedy are essentially they're like the same thing or they came from the same thing they're like descendants of the same thing which is like in the ancestral past the tribe sitting around the campfire and somebody stands up to like entertain to tell a story to make people laugh to make people cry to inspire to sing a song like it's kind of like absolutely you know what i mean so we we basically have the same art lineage same lineage exactly we're two genres that spawn exactly. from the same yeah. seed I, I feel that way as well mm. jazz you can add jazz to that the it's a musical dimension mm-hmm. of the same real phenomenon basically and they talk about the history of jazz and stand up <clears throat> specifically as two distinct art forms being the two indigenous American art forms. Mm-hmm. Some would argue hip-hop is a third, and, you know, I don't want to get into that whole discussion right now. Mm-hmm. But for a long time, jazz and stand-up comedy have been considered the two indigenous American performing arts. And the history of stand-up and jazz, by the way, is also deeply intertwined. So you'll find a lot of big comics who are huge jazz ads. Cosby, mm-hmm. for example, I realize, mm-hmm. you know, present controversy aside, just the nature of the the art of, of his comedy, if you notice, he uses his voice, for example, like a jazzy instrument. It's very, so even his, sonically, the quality of his performance and his delivery, he's playing his voice like an instrument right. in a very jazzy way, you know? And that's known, that's been marked, um, that's been even commented about academically. Um, yeah, that's true. And, like, so much of stand-up comedy, this is, like, the hardest thing for me. Like... Uh, you know, the thing that separates the amateurs from the pros is delivery. Because I can think of funny stuff all day, but it's like to actually stand up and how you say it and to... It's the cadence. It's like the cadence, just like how you play it. That's interesting. Well, I mean, but I would challenge you on the first part of what you said. I can think of funny stuff all day. I think a lot of non-comics think that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? And of course, it's true. We all think of funny... Every human being on earth thinks of funny stuff all day. Or at some point has funny thoughts, right? right. So Carlin has this great um, construct where he says, George Carlin says there are four levels of funny. <clears throat> the first level of funny is what do you find funny? Mm-hmm. Okay, so everybody has that level because everybody finds something funny. The second level of funny is the phenomenon of the inside joke. So you and your best friend, you and your sibling, you and your mom, you have this like one specific thing based on an experience of funny incident, whatever, and that becomes sort of the inside joke, and you both find it funny. So that's level two. Level three is what a comedian does, which is they get up in front of strangers and just tell jokes, share what they find funny, and not only have their friends find it funny, but these strangers are also finding it funny, which is a higher level. And then the fourth level, the highest level, is not only is it so funny that you find it funny and your friends find it funny and strangers find it funny, Strangers who hear you tell the joke, in fact, find it so funny that they go and tell others. And that's the fourth level of funny. Mm-hmm. So how, writing jokes that are that funny, that are not just like, I think of funny stuff all the time. So yeah, but is it funny enough that if, if crafted into a piece of material and shared with random strangers, would they find it so funny that they would go and tell others? Mm-hmm. That's the, really the, the goal, right, of great, writing great material. So, but that being said, I mean, you're an artist, you're a writer, so I wouldn't be surprised if you were actually thinking of comedic ideas mm-hmm. that are super hilarious, but you're right. Then the next piece becomes, how do you translate that into the words, right. and then, of course, also the performance, yeah. 
Yeah, it's very similar, actually, because, like, you're also, like, just having talked to you, I know you have, like, a lot of deep philosophical reflections and commentary and thoughts. Stuff that could easily be made into a poem. But, you know, there's a difference between having, like, poetic, deep (laughs) thoughts and, like, being able to present that in a way that transmits that to someone else. You know what I mean? 100%, bro. In fact, I would say, like, you remember that scene in, uh, you've seen Chappelle's uh, Block Party? Mm-hmm. He's sitting on the piano, and then he sort of looks in the camera. He's like, look, here's the thing. Every comedian wants to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Every musician wants to be a comedian, right? So I feel that. And I, and I would say in my case, not even like a musician, but more like a lyricist or just a poet. Cause, and I do write. And I, I write amateur poetry in the sense of like the way you might, mm-hmm. exactly the way you just said you think of jokes, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I love poetry. I've always loved poetry. You know, I wouldn't say it was, I was never all into it, like wanting to be an aspiring poet. I just never felt that. Right pull and never felt that path and but I do have this tremendous love for poetry and I've spent a lot of time I mean it's no secret no big a big uh, theme of your podcast has to do with Sufism mm-hmm. and the Sufi teaching and Sufi you know the Sufi path and so along that way you know I've also kind of been affiliated with and and, and um, flirting around the world of, of <laughs> Sufi teachers for the last couple of decades of my life, you know? So along the way, you discover a lot of poetry. You can't you can't really mess with the Sufis without right. having to, you know, contend with the fact that they have an oceanic, they have oceans and oceans it's of true. Sufi love It's like poetry. Sufism is synonymous with poetry. Right? Yeah, man. In the way that no other tradition, no even other mystical tradition is. That is correct. And and, and my, my, my parents are originally from India. So I spent time with Indian, you know, Sufi uh, sheikhs and, and uh, murshids, you know, peers. They call them peers. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sure you know that. And uh, Pakistani peers. And the ones who are, and, and the, specifically the ones who are into Sufism, if they're from the subcontinent, invariably they, they're going to know not only Urdu, but also Farsi. Yeah. And the oceanic treasure of spiritual, mystical poetry in the in, in the Islamicate languages, mm-hmm. just begins with Arabic, mm-hmm. and then extends into Farsi, and mm-hmm. then the, has this oceanic output. You know, there's more literature on religion and Islam and Sufi mysticism and poetry in the Urdu language on Earth than there is in Persian and Arabic combined. Really? Yeah, I mean the Urdu saints are they went ballistic. The Mughal Empire also was, right. you know, Urdu was the formal language of the Mughal Empire. Right. And there was a flourishing of so much deep metaphysical, mystical, and spiritual thought, spiritual schools, you know, the confrontation of Hindu mysticism and Hindu metaphysics with Sufi metaphysicians and Sufi mystics mm-hmm. produced this incredible, I mean, just a whole universe of literature, of, 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 of philosophy, of theosophy that... Sadly, you know, most people don't even know exists anymore, let alone is it something that is deeply explored and studied and maintained. You know, it's one of those added to the list of dying arts on planet Earth. But if you can find somebody who is tapped into that world, oh my God, you know, there are. Yeah, and we forget that these are like still, like you talk about Persia, talk about, you know, Pakistan. These are still like bardic civilizations. You could say, yeah, maybe it's dying out, but like, the previous generation, like, I remember I heard a story of a, a of an Iranian scholar who went to Pakistan and he visited the tomb of a saint and he stayed there like really late. And so basically he couldn't get a taxi 
back into town afterwards, but there was like a tuk tuk guy pulling a little thing, right? So he, so he, what you call him, a tuk tuk guy? Tuk tuk guy. Okay. So he gets on the little tuk tuk, and he doesn't speak any Urdu, and this guy, you know, so they're trying to communicate, and then he realizes, oh, you speak Farsi, and so he said the whole time back to the town for like a half hour, the tuk tuk driver is reciting. Farsi poetry, Subhan. Sufi poetry too. Yeah, man. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, man. So it's just like I've had so many of those experiences around. Oh, this is from this is a story of whom again? This was a, this was a story I heard. Uh, so I say Nasir talk about okay. his time. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I often will have encounters like this. The modern, the 2016, 17 equivalent of this is you know getting an Uber somewhere on Earth <laughs> with some person who has some yeah. connection to you know they're either they're Iranian they're. They're um, Afghani. A lot of Afghans also speak Farsi, and if they if they have a Sufi inclination, or more often than not, lineage. You know, a lot of people their, their grandparents are really into Tasawwuf, and they have you know maybe a family sheikh or whatever. And then I mean I can't tell you I've lost count how many times it's happened. And Urdu, my God, Urdu poetry. Don't get me started, man. I'm I'm, I'm in love with some of that stuff. It's just, and I'm like such a beginner. That's the other thing about it, right? When you know. And your exposure to a particular field is literally like elementary at best, mm-hmm. but you know enough to know that there are there are living master postdoc level. You right. know, that's kind of like there's something exciting about that to me. Yeah, I enjoy that. I, I like, and I heard somebody say that the more you know <laughs> is like the bigger your your the flame. So, for instance. If you know a little bit, you have like a little candle, or a little match, then like a candle. Then you learn a lot. You got a bigger bonfire, but all it does is illuminate the space that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like you more light to see. Oh, right. this goes on forever. Yeah, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. It's exactly. it's a parad- it's a cliche, yeah. but the reason it's true is because it's like knowledge is infinite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> knowledge is the domain of God, ultimate knowledge, right? Allahu alim. God has knowledge over everything. I remember this Sufi Shaykh blew my mind one time, breaking this thing down, this, the notion that God's knowledge is infinite. Okay, the way he explained it, he said, so what do we mean by that? God's knowledge is infinite. That means that within the knowledge of God, that which God knows, because we have to talk about epistemology, what does it mean to know? Right? This is, I would say the crisis of the age is epistemology. People, people are debating morality, which is a sideshow. Morality yeah. is a stupid debate because morality only comes out as just derivative from what your starting points of the nature yeah. of reality is. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. really a lot of this stuff. Yeah, so all 99.999% of discussions on earth today that are supposedly about religion, which end up becoming morality debates, have missed the point. Let's talk about what really is real. What are we talking about? What is about? existence? Yeah, what, what is, is it, happening? What is the nature of being itself? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I would say that actually there are four questions. What is the nature of being? What is the origin of being itself? What is the true nature of human consciousness? What is the purpose of it all? And what happens to me after we die? These are the only four real questions. Mm-hmm. Everything else is commentary. Mm-hmm. All religion, all spirituality, all mysticism, all, all uh, philosophy is just commenting and debating these nuances. But these four questions are at the heart of it all. And these are the four things that we want to talk about. All right. Jumping back into it, God's knowledge encompasses everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what does it mean to know? So once we go through those definitions, okay, now we understand, okay, that God's knowledge, that is to say, what is knowable, 
that is what knowledge is. Yes. Is an infinite universe of possible being. Mm-hmm. Okay. And infinity, as opposed to absoluteness, are the archetypal representations of time and space. Time is infinite, space is finite. Or space is, mm-hmm. is absolute. Sorry, mm-hmm. not finite, but, but absolute. Mm-hmm. So God... God's infinitude and God's absoluteness are mirrored, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, without being blasphemous, right. by the phenomenon, by the dimensionality of so-called right. time and space. And those are woven, like space and time is a continuum. Space time is a continuum. And the exactly absolute right. is exactly one. right. Exactly right. And this duality of is it, which one is it, you know, and where is it? This is the whole brilliance and the beauty of the of the Heisenberg principle, right? The uncertainty principle. Everything is you cannot both attribute speed and location because that's impossible. Yeah. There's speed, it's in movement, you cannot locate it. He's, I asked Sheikh Hamza Yusuf one time, uh, well, yeah, I asked him this off the record, but he answered it in a way that allows me to share it publicly. I was like, look, Sheikh Hamza, tell me something, man, off the record, between you and me and you and me. Do you believe that the Isra and the Mi'raj, the mystical night journey of the messenger of God, the ascent into heaven, was a physical bodily journey or not? This is a big debate, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, I can only answer your question with a question. And I said, what is that? Is light a particle or a wave? Think about that. Okay. I mean, that's back to the Heisenberg principle, uncertainty. You cannot, the, the question itself is absurd. Right. You're trying to. It's it's you're trying neither, to be, and it's both, and only witnessing it makes it in one place. Like correct. That whole thing. It's reductionist question. Yeah. It's a question that assumes a reductionist worldview, that right. and a scientific material worldview that is divorced from the essence of what we've been talking about from the beginning, which is a spiritual starting point. What is the true nature of reality? The yeah. world is not on the, its ultimate level, nothing more than bits and particles right. and physical matter. It is. It's true that it's secret and its reality is far beyond any notion of like, so was it a bodily journey or not? Like the right. question is an elementary yeah, challenge. Yeah, it always question. me is like, I mean, you know, I, and the part of that the hadith about the Isra is that the Prophet's pillow was still warm when he returned. Allah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like what, what are yeah, we it's a, talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's a mystical experience. And it's obvious, it? man. Like the fact that, and also the other thing is like, it's all a mystical experience. You know like, what's weird to me, man? Nobody talks about. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. You continue your line of thought. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was Latter generations like us struggle to talk about his hakika, his reality, mm-hmm. because it's so difficult to reconcile the utterly infinite metaphysical cosmic principle upon which the hakikat al muhammadiyah the archetypal reality of being itself, light, the Nur Muhammadiyah, which is, on, on the one hand, absolute truth, reconcile that with the quote-unquote lived bodily human experience. It's almost like this Christian problem that they run into where it's, you know, they try to deify a human being and forget that he was also a person when he was here on earth. He mm-hmm. lived a physical life. Mm-hmm. In that regard, like, so many amazing details from the Prophet's life that are preserved and recorded and passed down that upon any level of just contemplation and consideration are so utterly humanizing and beautiful. Like, for instance, when he was 
going through what we would call in modern day, you know, terms like a, a period of depression and even contemplated suicide. Throwing himself off of a, a, a mountain. Allahumma salli ala nabi. So that, where does that waswasa come from, right? That's the devil. That's the, the, the ego. That's projection. That's doubt. That's mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. That's all those utterly relatable human things that because of the discourse that has kind of emerged that, that does not deify but quasi- um, you know, uh, exaggerates and embellishes in the interest of love. It's it's based on love. It's not coming from a bad place, mm-hmm. but and, and also the opposite is is dangerous. You know, because that's what the opposite when the pendulum swings to the opposite extreme. Opposite extreme. That's what some of the are misguided, you know, quote unquote brothers. I would say some of these people, quite frankly, are human devils that have hijacked religion mm-hmm. in the name of religion to destroy religion. And I don't want to say call them all Wahhabis and things like that. People do that stuff. I'll just say that, you know, the aqidah, the, the actual precise creedal doctrinal, doctrinal beliefs adopted by some misguided uh, uh, cults and misguided threads within our community is one thing. But there's simply no denying the fact that when you, whatever philosophy and creed you've adopted leads you astaghfirullah to disrespect the messenger of God to oh. not cultivate love for the messenger of God to not understand yeah. the centrality of love yeah. for the messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wasallam in your lived spiritual path and experience then know that's that's sufficient to know that something is is wrong yeah you know? and these people they're trapped in the horizontal like you say like they 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 don't experience that haqiqa muhammadiyah the muhammadan reality like I heard something, you know, there was one master that said, he said, he said the difference between with those, you know, you know, people of that, you know, anti-intellectual, anti-spiritual tradition within Islam, he said, is that we say, Ashadu wa la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. They say, Ashadu wa la ilaha illallah. It's a misperception of it's my back to my point about the importance it of It all comes to that, right? Everything is based on epistemology, man. What and it's like starting? like think about like and this is a beauty too that, that needs to be articulated because people don't really understand. They're like, what does this historical personage really have to do with me right now? But right. it's like no, in every tradition, like you think about we have Hakika Muhammadiyah, you know. The, the Christians, they have this idea of, you know, the that Christic reality, that Christ consciousness. Yes, Christ that, consciousness, absolutely. And then even like the, the in the Buddhist tradition, they also have this idea of like the Buddha nature, yes. which exists at Buddha the center hood. of yeah, everyone's Buddha being. Enlightenment, you know what I mean? Yes. And it's like, and as we understand, is that all of the prophets, that, that light is, is, is one source. Like the, you know what I mean? Correct. It's, it's all facets. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, like literally, that's what you know. Ibn Arabi uses Fusus al Hikam is like facets, a fast in a ring. You know, like mm-hmm. the Fusus al Hikam, each chapter yes, is about yes, a prophet being, prophet. Yes. being you know, c- containing a different, Allah. like dominant virtue, but it's all like like a different, you could think of it as like a different color of the color spectrum, but it's all the pure light. You know what Beautiful. I mean? Yes. And so it's just filtered through different lenses, 100%. which is like, that's exactly right. But you, you know, I mean, and we live in, in, a, in a time where, um, yeah, there's just so much, and, and that's a good th- point, what you're saying. Like, whenever I have conversation with people, one thing that I'm really aware of is, like, we, first, we have to define terms. 
Oh yeah, because I'm an, I'm an agnostic. You know what agnosticism is? Huh. Agnostic, not okay. agnostic. Agnosticism, I-G, a.k.a. igtheism, which I think is a corny word. <laughs> but agnosticism is a school of thought, if you will, or a starting, a, a, a way of, of, of organizing one's relationship with such conversations such as mm-hmm. the ones we're having. And the starting point of an, an agnostic is to say, look, I refuse to have any conversation about any matters relating to pertaining to God, religion, spirituality, using any of the terminology of God, soul, good, evil, heaven, hell, judgment, morality. We're not going to talk about any of that till we first start with a conversation about defining these terms. Because mm-hmm. there's so much crosstalk. Everybody's using the same terms to mean different things, slightly different terms. You know, it's back to sure. what we were talking about that yesterday about the nature of language and precision of terms and meaning, right? Yeah. These, the, the, I'm, convinced, I'm, I'm completely and utterly and totally convinced that this is where the conversation is going, among, at the adult table on Earth, among, among intelligent yeah. you know, researchers. And that's scientists. why one of them said, when, when, you know, one of the scholars said that when he meets someone who says, I don't believe in God, he responds, I don't believe in the, the God same you God don't, you, don't you don't believe, believe in. in either, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's what also, like... And so, yeah, I think a, and, and lack of ability to define terms and just throwing around terminology without defining terms specifically and making sure we're actually meaning the same thing. You know, when I say, I mean, Rumi has this beautiful thing, too, where he said he talks about, you know, an Ethiopian, a, a Greek, an Arab and a Persian. They all sat at, at a table and they ask you know the waiter i want this in their own language i said i'd like this i'd like this i'd like this and then they started arguing like no i want this you know i want this and they so they're arguing about what they want to order but then when the dish came it was grapes and they had all ordered grapes in their own language <laughs> you know what i mean they just thought so in, in certain <laughs> senses maybe we're using different terms but we mean the same thing mm-hmm. or maybe we're using the same term but we mean different things mm-hmm. and it indicates sloppy thinking yes. like it's just a lack of discernment yes if we're and it's funny too i was thinking about this because you know um if you go in certain in in certain spaces there's like terms you know like for the the whole like postmodernist like activist thing there's certain terms you know like a checklist like problematic and intersectional uh, intersectionality and, um, you know what I mean? Like a whole range of, I don't want to be, you know what the thing is? I, I don't, I feel like I'm going to become more, I want to improve at, um, being more understanding, empathetic and respectful of that discourse. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I can kind of sometimes be dismissive of it and I don't mean it in a bad way, not intentionally. But I can see how that would be received as unempathetic, you know, because I think everybody's in the ultimately just we're all, we're all trying our best. Yeah, people we're are trying to diff- figure it out. Yeah, people are at different points, exactly. And you know, there are plenty of things I can look to my own self. You know, ten years ago, five years ago, one year ago, last week, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh my god, why was completely missed the point on that thing. Well, if I could see that looking backwards, you know, mm-hmm. at my own self, who am I to stand in judgment of anybody else? Right. Which and for is, sure, hopefully, if you grow 
in one year or five years, ten years, you're going to look, look at back yourself on today and be like, and be like Man, what was the guy talking about? Exactly. So, and that's our lived experience. We just don't kind of take note of that to realize the absurdity of ever standing in judgment over another person. Because at any moment in time, it's just a snapshot, one frame of the movie of their life. You have no idea where, where you're at in the movie. But, but here's what I want to say about, this is related to where we started about the God has knowledge over everything. So the Sheikh says, look, time and space, right? Uh, infinitude and, and, and absoluteness. So when we talk about God has knowledge over everything, that means God's knowledge encompasses everything that ever was. Mm-hmm. Everything that is. And everything that will ever be. And far more impressive in his way, subhanahu wa ta'ala, is that his knowledge also encompasses everything that never was. Everything that is not. Yes. And everything that will never, never be. be. Allah, I... La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. I said something like that. Inna Allah ala kulli shayin God has knowledge over all. It is literally infinite ocean yes. without shore. Yeah. Imam Ghazali oh too. Imam Ghazali said something which oh really hit me powerfully. He said, in Jannah... He goes, there's levels of Jannah. He said, for the common folk, there, there's a, the Jannah is, is like the, what's described of the pleasures in the garden. So he goes, but for the elect, that paradise is gazing upon Allah without avail. And at each moment, your, you could say like your aperture is more wide, so you're able to take in more, 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 more forever, and it never ends. Nah, you yeah, never yeah, can yeah, reach the. Nah, you yeah, can yeah. never reach the depth. You can never say yeah, I, I got it all. Yeah, I got it all. It's you know what I mean? Yeah, nah, this nah, one. Nah, 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 you nah, say that. Nah, beyond nah, stars, nah, beyond ours, beyond planets and spheres, beyond quarks and quasars, beyond far, beyond near, beyond space, beyond time, beyond races and climes. Beyond what we beyond, beyond beings and signs, beyond letters, beyond words, beyond spoken and heard, beyond everything that will and will never recur, beyond every number and shape you can ever conjure, beyond, 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 ad infinitum absurd. Allah, yeah. like, you wrote that? Yeah. Oh my God, it's beautiful, man. Mashallah, mashallah. It's gorgeous, and, and that's man. why it's like... That's how I feel, brother. Rumi has that line. He says, sell your cleverness Allah. and buy bewilderment. The way of the true arifin is just... Like, what is going oh, on here? And that's why people faint. And that's why people just uh, go majdu because it's so beyond. And it's, it's so beautiful. And you can never... Encapsulated, you can never speak Allah it. Allah. You can never even talk about it. Imam Ghazali also says, anytime you talk about the realities of of dhuq, you necessarily mix truth with falsehood. Mm. Because well, you the, can... now this is a, gets us to an interesting point, bro. Mm. You know, listening to your podcast, let it load sitting here, being on your podcast, mm. speaking about these matters that are you know. These are the most precious gems and jewels of our of our of, of our tradition, mm-hmm. and not just our tradition by extension of human knowledge, mm-hmm. collected wisdom. 
And there's always been a tension <laughs> within our quote-unquote religion. And I'm putting that word in quotes for a reason mm -hmm. because it's my belief back to terminology. We need to define these terms, okay? And that's a big The world is full today of what I would call, if we talk about fake news, the world is full of fake religion, <laughs> okay? And including Muslims, hashtag. hashtag fake religion. And by the way, Muslims are in denial, mm -hmm. by and large. In my judgment, and God forgive me if I'm wrong, but in my assessment, my, my, my um, view, my perspective based on, I mean, I've traveled a lot of the world and talked to a lot of people and been heavily involved, heavily involved at times, and remain at least connected to you know, a lot of Muslim leaders and activists and thinkers and intellectuals and academics and artists and entertainers and people who are at the forefront of making culture and policy and, you know, thought leaders. In those spheres and in those circles, you know, my observation has been that, that there's a lot now on earth passing for what is so-called Islam, quote-unquote, but in fact is really nothing more than Islam going through as a religion on earth, the same thing that the Quran and the prophet of God told us and tell us mm -hmm. happened to every religion before Islam. Mm -hmm. In other words, the devil comes in through human devils and demon devils, jinn and human beings. Mm -hmm. And they are slaves and they are servants of the devil, Satan himself. And their job is nothing more. Which nothing also less. Satan. That's a that's a term we should define. We should define. You feel me? Yeah. Who? Yeah. What do we mean? A specific individual? Do we mean an archetypal phenomenon, an infernal yeah, energy, yeah. negative darkness, evil? Because blah, what blah, did the prophet say? Some say it says Shaitan flows through the, <sighs> the veins of the children of Adam like blood. <sighs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, and every human being has a devil assigned to them, and yeah, yeah. you read screw tape letters, I'm sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that book is incredible, dude. But. Back to the moral of the story, Satan on all those levels of meaning, mm -hmm. I believe, an archetypal reality and also a created darkness, being, a creature. that which calls away from the light. No, no, that's no, no, no. that's correct. Uh, actually, to try to get you to doubt mm -hmm. eternal truth. Mm -hmm. This is a very profound uh, insight that I learned from a great sheikh. He attributed it to Imam al-Muhasibi, ancient Sufi wisdom teaching from Orthodox religion. In other words, not goofy Sufi stuff. And I mess with some of that goofy stupid stuff too. But I'm just very clear about what the difference is between the, the, the value and the weight of the, of the teaching. This is like straight classical orthodoxy. Mm. There's only four types of insinuations that arise in your heart. Four suggestions, four notions, four types. That's it. And they come from, each comes from a corresponding source. You've heard about this. You know, the first one is the desire, the inclination, the prompting to disobey God, for example, to, to violate a moral law, a moral code of behavior, ethical, moral, spiritual, whatever it is, at whatever level, even let's just say that is your own moral compass, okay? Mm -hmm. But to, 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 to violate that, that thing, that prompting is coming from your own ego. Mm -hmm. It's just enough. It's just your own desires, appetites. In other words, the devil's not trying to get you to sin. Your own ego's doing plenty. Hell of a good job doing that on its own, all right? The second inclination is the desire to obey God, to resist that, and that is from the angels. The third inclination is doubt about eternal truth in whatever form, and that is from the devil. Mm. And the fourth is utter and complete and absolute conviction without doubt about eternal truth. 
And that is from God himself. So they're called khawatir nafsani, khawatir malakani, khawatir shaitani, wa khawatir rahmani, or khawatir rambani. So that teaching, I think, is so helpful, man, because it get, puts in context our own experiences moment to moment and explodes this myth that somehow that's the devil that's trying to get you to sin. The devil doesn't care if you sin or doesn't, don't sin. The devil's game, his long game, is to get you to renounce faith and leave this world doubting that there is a loving, eternal God waiting for you on the other side. That's his whole game. That's all the devil cares about in the end of the day. Sin becomes a path to that insofar as it desensitizes the person mm-hmm. to belief. Because it's like you don't want to reconcile, like, yo, if there really is a God, how can I be so flagrantly out of integrity? So after a while, you start just believing in the way you're living rather than believing in God and realizing you're out of integrity. And it would be so much better, infinitely better, for all of modern human beings to simply accept in one breath, yo, God is real, and may God please forgive me. Everybody's saved. Mm-hmm. The error is to keep denying our own sin, to live in denial of sin because we're so ashamed and embarrassed. And once we deny sin, that we're living sinfully, we'll never ask for forgiveness. Yeah. So this is the game that modern man is playing now, you know, with, with, with our soul. Uh, if, if, if modern human beings are, you know, sort of, um, where's the default state right now, you know? We're it's playing a dangerous chaos, game. It's chaos. it's chaos. It's spiritual chaos. Because, like, you know, I think a lot of what happened in, in traditional societies, like, for instance, when I spent time in Bali, which is predominantly Hindu, or when I spent time in the Amazon jungle, which is, like, shamanic, indigenous, you know, or when I spent time in, like, in, in West Africa, in, in, like, the Gambia, these are, like, societies which are in many ways still pre-modern and still in a sacred universe mm. where people don't question, people haven't been introduced to mm. ideas. Fundamental which doubt, right, that have converted. And people experience the divine. Mm. Whether it's like a Balinese man who's like in his rice field, like he is, he is just like sanctified because he is just contemplating the signs and the, the shaman in the Amazon. Like people are in, in a, there is just... There's a natural urge to give offerings and to pray and to commune with the spirit and the transcendent and to be aware of the unseen. And the thing is, either this is a natural human inclination across time and space because it's real, these things are real, the unseen is real, or it's a, it's a primitive, childish illusion before we awoken to scientific, rationalist materialism. Do you ever feel when you get up in front of a crowd that you don't really want to be funny? You want to like explore ideas that are that are meaningful to you, and you feel like it's less fun. It's less important to be funny and more important to like use a platform to discuss. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I think it also kind of. Pers- just depends on the day of the week. Yeah, just your feeling. It's a mood, yeah, it's a mood thing. When I, I think that when I feel that, I feel conflicted because I, I don't feel like that's right. I feel that I'm I'm cheating. I'm cheating my I'm cheating because my responsibility as a comic is to make the audience laugh. That's the def, that's the job definition. 
So if I'm more interested in exploring ideas than I am in making them laugh, then it's almost kind of like... Do a TED not, Talk, bro. Yeah, not, that's not fair to them, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 but, but, but I justify it or I give myself the license to do that because it's the only way to get to the promised land I'm trying to get to, which is to be able to do both. Yeah. Make people, you know, think. Uh, the, the, the gold standard to me is make them laugh in the room, think on the way home. Mm-hmm. The gold standard to me is to do stand-up comedy that is both timely but also timeless. You know, you could listen to a Richard Pryor bit right now about police brutality, and it's like it was done last week. Mm. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. You can listen to pretty much any George Carlin commentary on American politics or culture, and it's like he's commenting on Trump America. Mm-hmm. Bill Hicks, same thing. So all my idols in comedy are people whose material... I mean, like, I saw Chappelle do that set on SNL, the one that just won the Emmy. Immediately, the night I saw it, like, the night it happened, I was like, this is, people could be watching this in 40 years. Right. If the world is still around, you know? So social commentary, like smart comedy, that's what you're into. Incisive, intelligent, and, you know, um, the, what, is the, what is the essence of great comedy? Let's talk about stand-up in particular. What is the essence of great stand-up comedy? You're asking me? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think it is. For me... Who, who's your favorite comedian of all time and right now? Um... First of all, are you a fan of stand-up? Yes. Okay. But I'm like a, not a hardcore fan. I'm a casual, but I like it. Like, I got you. My first initiation was my dad had the VHS of Eddie Murphy Delirious. <laughs> and when I was like 12 years old, I memorized every word. Which, you memorized Delirious? Yeah. You still know it till today, probably. I know a lot of it, bro. Wow. You know, like the bit about... Uh, we got, got some ice, it's ice cream. I got some, I got some ice, ice cream. cream. I got some ice cream. And you don't have <laughs> none because your daddy is an alcoholic. <laughs> bro, all those. Oh my that's God. how I learned like half of the Holy cuss words in the dictionary. It's like, oh like I had God, no business so listening. Funny. That's is, that, is that also the, the special he does the impression of Cosby and Pryor? Uh, no, I think they that was wrong. Tell him to go. Yeah, that was raw, which I saw later. But which is so so interesting that he was the, he was dissing Cosby so hard at that time. Bro, he does so many fun things. Prior, yeah, yeah maybe he maybe he did talk about Cosby. But bro, I, he's yeah, I forget what's in something about like the people movies. defending <laughs> Stevie Wonder's Stevie Wonder's a musical genius because <laughs> he did Stevie Wonder jokes and then people so black <laughs> yeah, people got so bad. So funny. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's looking for him, right? <laughs> he wants to fight him. That's so funny. You know he did that stuff by the way in his early twenties. Yeah. In a freaking hot red leather tw- suit. I think he was twenty one when he made his first special. That's I mean insane. Only I mean, I don't think people outside of show business can really appreciate and understand how insane that is. Mm. Even to be honest with you, only anybody out of stand up can appreciate how insane. Mm. To have that level of unrivaled, unparalleled, unprecedented success. Yeah. That young, bro? Just killing it. Wow. It's it's utterly incredible, man. I think he's in a category of one in that regard as mm-hmm. a comedian. Nobody But, else. like, for me, so I don't... I appreciate, like, Carlin, Richard Pryor, newer comedians. 
Who's your favorite? Like, I really like Cat game? Williams when he's on. Like, when he's yeah, killing, he's like, amazing. who kills like that? But, it, you know, he's not consistent. That's the thing. Right. But, like, that thing about weed, dude, that's the funniest. That's like, incredible. Come man. on, bro. That's incredible. Then you've seen Lion in the Zoo? Could, huh? The uh, Cat Williams big no, uh, Lion in the Zoo? Oh, my God. It's incredible. The every day I'm hustling, how he came out to that? Like, come on, bro. Yeah. He's amazing. I agree. Um, I'm a fan of his. But the point is, like, for me, what I think about comedy is, like, Okay, you have to say something that resonates with people, but they haven't really formulated it before. Like, what's funny is when you say, you know when you X, Y, Z, and people are like, yeah, I do know. Actually, I never really thought about that. And so you're, you're like illuminating something. In, you're like lighting a little bit more of the fire to illuminate what, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But also, like a lot of comedy is in the space between you're not really supposed to say that in polite company. Mm-hmm. So it's, but you, you can't go too far. Because if you just offend people, people are going to be like, this is whack. Right. But if you're just like, it's, it's got to be too vanilla. It's got to like, be acceptably naughty. Mm-hmm. It's got to push the limit of like, and that's what I was going to ask too. Is like, do you feel, because I know a lot of comedians, you could tell they're very intelligent people, very thoughtful, very observant. And it seems like a lot of comedians actually tend to be people that are both in and out of society. Like, for instance, people who are in but out of, like, the in-group. So they have mm-hmm. a vantage point. Like, so, you know, traditionally it was like there was a lot of Jewish comedians because mm-hmm. they're white but they're not white. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then black comedians because you're American but you're black. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you have this outsider. And then, like, even I think about Louis C.K. who's, like, just looks like a average white dude but he's this mexican. is mexican. mexican so he like you know what yeah, i mean yeah like that's I just his mean, native tongue was spanish you know what i mean it's crazy so but but i do feel like a lot of these smart comedians dumb down because mm-hmm. it's like common denominator mm-hmm. man like it's mm-hmm. hard to get everybody not everyone's going to follow you it's like it's easier to just you know tell jokes about bodily functions because sure. everyone is the kind of gets sure. a huh, 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 yeah, yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, do you? I mean, do you feel like yeah, that tension? Yeah, I get. Well, so man, this is a, we've opened up so many mm-hmm. interesting uh, dimensions and uh, threads regarding stand up. Right. So one thing I would say, let's get back to the thing you said about um, one thing they kind of all have in common is they, you know, you ever you ever notice that? And then yeah, I have noticed. So sort of the the phenomenon of identifying, naming. And talking about a shared experience, realization, idea, thought that has never been articulated before. Basically. But that's common to human experience. That's right. That's why it's a shared, yeah. it's a shared yeah. commonly, widely shared experience yeah. that no, nobody's really ever pointed out explicitly. That's one aspect of it. Let's come back to that in a second. And then separately, you mentioned this other point about, um, about um, uh, CK and... Uh, insider, outsider. Insider, outsider, the duality of kind of having both points of view mm-hmm. and then being able to kind of exploit that, if you will, mm-hmm. by, by almost like holding up a mirror. But then that led to the idea of the dumbing down, the, mm-hmm. the problem of having to dumb down. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of, to me, three distinct mm-hmm. subjects. Right? The dumbing down thing is easy. To me, that's really just a function of, of commercial motivation. Yeah, it's true. You know, you, you, you're, you're, you're the greatest rapper of all time. Guess what? You want to have a club banger on the tra- on the album because you want it to get radio play because you want it to be popping off in the clubs so you, you people will know you exist and buy your full album and appreciate the artistry and the American incredible lyrical genius on the rest of the tracks but you still got to put out the dun dun 
dun dun dun dun Booty's got to bounce in order to get the fame and the money of the showbiz thing. That's the comedy equivalent, you know, dick jokes. I hate to be, you know, crass, but that's the phenomenon. So to me, the comedian, just the artist, each individual person has to make their own artistic choice of what, how, how and what they want to do to address, to scratch that, check that box. You know, there are plenty of comics who just never do. Like, they just are in their own lane, you know. So I think really it becomes a function of finding your lane, finding your frequency, finding your tone, finding your space and the way in which you want to do this thing called stand-up and figuring out how to address that. Because it's not really about being crass or whatever. It's really about making it commercially viable. How will it be relatable at a mass level? And by the way, some comics simply never will, right? They have a cult following, they have an underground following, just like there's some great rappers, great right. poets, great filmmakers. Rappers, the, rappers. Yeah, some of the, exactly, some of the greatest films sure. are not, not widely known, right. but they're known among the world's greatest. You know, so yeah. it's about taste, and it gets a little bit into classism no, and true. elitism and all. Yeah. But, but all that a aside... Lot, the best rappers, like technically, there's... You can't appreciate them unless you are a rapper. Correct. Like, and so you can't call even... Call comics comics. You know, mm-hmm. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. Comics comics. Yeah. Oh, he's a comics comic, right? I, I, I've been working at the cellar now. I think I mentioned that to you, man. I mean, this is the biggest honor of my career. So I'm at the comedy cellar for the last few months, and I'm getting to see comics comics. You know, like, I mean, David Tell has a cult following because he had that show on... on uh, what was that? Um, on, I think it was Comedy Central during the 90s, uh, Insom- uh, Insomniac. And so he's got fan base, but the level of his mastery of the craft of stand-up comedy is ah, it's out of this world, man. Greer Barnes, you probably never heard of Greer Barnes. Mm-hmm. Greer Barnes, man, I saw him open for Seinfeld when I started doing comedy in like 03, 04. And this dude opens for CK, he opens for Rock, he opens for Seinfeld. Like, he is a comedy genius, but... Never I'm not, nobody's there, not well, not well known. At least not yet, you know? Comics, com- true comics, comic, man. And there's a bunch of those kind of guys in, in, in stand-up. Right. But the simple fact is, um, these are artistic decisions and choices that people right. make. Yes. And they're not dumbing it down. They're like doing they're not some dumbing elite at all. stuff. Correct. Now, going back to the first question about the observational mm-hmm. aspect, right? This is, a, this is a, a sort of smart original, what I'm about to share with you. <laughs> Which is a, so a thought that I had because I've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes something funny. You know, what is a great joke? What is what do all my favorite comedians and favorite type of stand up have in common? I'm really trying to get to it. And there's a great book, by the way. I'm not, though I'm not a fan of Sigmund Freud in general, many of his overarching psychological theories. I don't think that you know it's wise to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, he definitely has some insights. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote a book called Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. Really? Yeah. I didn't know Fascinating that. book, yeah. Oh. So building on some of the ideas that he proposes, but really my own insight as to like the nature of the relationship between the mind, so the, the, the mind, let's say, by that term, back to terminology, we mean the intellectual dimension of the human experience, mm-hmm. okay, and the intellectual dimension as not only the brain, like as a physical, physiological phenomenon, 
but the notion of thought, yes. as opposed to emotion or feeling, which is the domain of the heart, as opposed to physicality and bodily right. feeling, which is the you know the body, as opposed to even spiritual feelings, which is the, you know, right. the spirit, as opposed to psychic, you know, which right. is like, kind of like the soul. No, we're talking about the mind. Okay, in the domain of the mind, you have sort of like layers. So to borrow some psychological terminology, imagine the mind is sort of like the 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 rational, aware level of the mind. Let's call that the discursive mind or the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. And then right behind the conscious mind, you have that kind of first layer. Let's call that the first level, level of subconscious mind, of the, of the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. So you have one layer of subconscious thought. Most people don't just have you and I sitting here, we're talking. That's one level. The listener is listening, they're listening to the words I'm saying. But maybe there's right behind it, there's like this other thought that's there, the question that's burning in their mind. Well, what do you mean by that? Or maybe they have to go to the bathroom. So they're like, oh, I gotta go find a bathroom. They're still listening, but there's the processing that second layer. Then there's the sub subconscious mind, the layer right behind that. So maybe the guy is thinking, driving, he's gotta go to the bathroom, and he's thinking to himself, yo, but I know I'm 10 minutes away from home, maybe I can hold it, but there's a spot over there, I can just take the exit. So now he's also processing yet another layer. And then, of course, a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. So you have all these layers of subconscious thought, mm-hmm. behind which ultimately is just infinite unconscious, right? You could call it, again, by so many different names, the realm of the mumkin and wujud, you know, the pos- realm of possible being, which is infinite. You can call it uh, the infinite unconscious, Carl Jung. You can call it the, you know, limbo, <laughs> infinite right. unconscious in uh, Inception. Whatever term you want to put out, the point is at some point the mind slips into this infinitude. What does a great comic do? A great comic basically introduces a premise or a thought or an idea about an experience that is commonly shared. And then instead of just talking about it at the conscious level or at the level of the discursive mind, reaches up, so to say, into like three or four layers of subconscious deep and then pulls out that thought and then rips it down and sort of presents it at the level of the conscious mind. And what a great comic would do is be able to ascertain a very common series of steps. Like if you had this thought, then you would also have this thought. Mm. Then you would have this other thought, and then you'd probably have this other thought, right? And it's the ability to basically just very logically draw those, the the almost like unexpected and absurd dominoes. Yeah, to connect dots that others haven't. Correct. And just, or if they have, they've done it unconsciously. So really the, the magic is sort of like pulling that thought that everybody has had, this is your point about, and what a lot of times people, when a joke is killing, people are laughing viscerally from the stomach, dying, right? Just belly laugh. What's going on there is this idea of like, oh my God, that's so true. People actually said that. Yeah. That's so true, yeah. right? So they actually yeah, because if, had if, that if you think, if, like if you're saying something, and it's like, yeah, that's so true, that's crazy, that's yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, it, you know, then it's funny. But if you... If say you say something and I'm like no I don't think I don't, that's I true don't agree, right. then it's like it's it, not funny it, it's not funny Correct. it's just like mm, I, don't, I don't see what you're doing there Correct mm. so the logic the internal logic of a joke has to work mm. and it's a very interesting phenomenon mm. of of what makes a joke work you know it has what, to be true and what are the mechanics of a joke mm. you know jokes also have structure every single joke that exists everything that's ever made you laugh has had two parts mm. the first part is called the setup mm-hmm. the second called it's called the punchline, right? Even a guy walking down the street slips on a banana peel. The setup is he's walking down the street, you don't expect another head, he slips on a banana peel, that's the punchline. Everything that's ever made you laugh could ultimately be sort of like put into this framework, into this structure. So what makes it funny? What makes a punchline work? Mm-hmm. The essence of comedy is 
surprise. That's the essence of all comedy, is that you don't see it coming, quote-unquote. If you see the punchline coming, it's not yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. So the essence of comedy is actually surprise. Mm. Okay? And a great punchline is um, kind of has a couple of different features to it. Number one is it still works. It follows some internal logic because the premise, you could see mm. the premise, the first part of it, the, is the, the, set, the, set, the punchline is justified by the premise. It's undergirded and supported by the logic of where the premise could go. And yet, at the same time, it's surprising in some way because you didn't think of it. You didn't see it coming. Based on So it has these two features. A great punchline, like the perfect punchline, if you will, is where the entire audience gets the joke at the same moment, on the mm. same word. So what you notice a lot of times is you have a setup and then you start telling the rest of the punchline. Some people get it right away and start laughing, ha, ha, ha. And then as more lines go, more words, more words, more lines, and by the time you're done with the sentence, everybody's gotten the joke now. But that's, that still could be a great joke. But what makes a truly great joke is, you know, it's quiet, set up, set up, set up, set up, set up. Punchline starts, bada, bada, bada. Boom. And then, ah, everybody gets it at the same word. That's a perfectly constructed joke. That's amazing. I've never thought of this, but when you were saying that, it made me think of the word wujud, mm-hmm. wajada, mm-hmm. the root. Discovery. Which, which it means existence. Actually, it means being. Being and existence, or it means a lot. So it has all these, so I'm to, so it means being, existence, it means binding. Discovery. To find, yeah, to, to discover, find. to discover. And it also means ecstasy joy mm. bliss what's it, yeah, what's so it? like they're like there's no fine when everyone finds in that moment there's a bliss like <laughs> it's and it's, it's, it's like it's, it's bliss like it's beautiful we all right. like ah yeah like there's right. a there's a it's release there's a release and it's because we all find and, and so it's like this it's and beautiful. then though and and, and like comedy is, is interesting because it's it's experiential it's a though it's like like because and that's what's deep about also like poetry is because other types of communication, like if I said, please go get me the red notebook. All you have to understand is please get me the red notebook. If you understand all the words, you can do it and you can bring it back. And that's successful communication, 100%. Yes. Yes. But if I write a poem and you understand every word perfectly, but it doesn't affect you, it doesn't move you, it doesn't rearrange something inside of you it doesn't hit you it doesn't combine that finding that ecstasy that ah or even joy pain anything but it doesn't make you feel it's failed not like five percent but a hundred percent it's which is like comedy oh yeah like if if, it's it's just like this like you know the whole thing of like you tell a joke everyone laughs but that one dude who's like i don't get it it's like you try to explain it to him it's not funny anymore because you can't you can't separate the joke. the joke, the message from the medium. Correct. How it's said from what it's said. Oh my God. Just if, like we get a, if we open this door of the message is the medium, the medium is the message. Mm. You know about this? Marshall McLuhan? Mm-mm. You know, I've never heard of Marshall McLuhan. Mm-mm. Marshall McLuhan is like one of the greatest media theorists of the 20th century. And he coined this term famously, this phrase, the medium is the message. Mm. It's actually exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I've heard the phrase, yeah. but I don't, I don't Bro, like know the Bro, this is a whole another podcast, man. I mean, tele- I've thought about this for the last decade, man. Like, television 
specifically as a medium. Also, when you say you love podcasting as a dope medium, right? Yeah. I totally get what you mean by that. Because each medium, the medium is the message. Right. Okay? Uh, television as a, is a reductionist medium. Mm. It reduces everything to slogans, mm -hmm. to phrases, to a logo, to a jingle, to an right. image, to a picture, to a particular tone. I mean, you know, it's Fox News. And we use those two words, Fox News. And it's like you already know what you're going to get. The medium is the message, okay? Podcasting, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. It's a, it's a medium for deep, meaningful, exploratory, unrushed, research-supported, time-to-breathe, reflective, contemplative types of communication and conversations. That doesn't exist in the culture, man. Mm. So podcasting is this dark horse, like, about to really, really have a it's massive impact. Especially yeah. when everyone's like, no one has... You know, no one has the attention span. It has to be 10 seconds or 20 seconds. But yet there's podcasts that are two hours and three, three hours, hours every yeah. episode. Right. And they have millions of listeners. Yeah, it's right. I, would, I would actually argue that the adoption of podcasting increasingly, particularly in this long format, is really kind of a reaction mm -hmm. to the, the dumbing down by this corporate-owned, corporate-controlled corporate media that is just trying to commodify human attention and has really, because of these screens, you know, just reduced the ability to human, of human beings to concentrate on anything into micro, micro mm -hmm. bites of, of, of time and communication. We use a sound bite culture. We use that phrase, you know. And, uh, to, you know, what was that? Vine, you know, six seconds. People would get bored of a boring vine. A half second in, you start playing as it's done. I'm done with it. Mm -hmm. So, but so, well, what do I actually call that? Micro ghafla. Mm -hmm. Technology, all this smartphone, uh, social media, web enabled world we're living in has now enabled micro ghafla. You can't even sit and take a dump and sit alone with your thoughts. You're just checking Facebook while sitting on the toilet. Like, we don't have any time alone with our own selves. Mm -hmm. Modern human beings, you know. So these are these are. But so I, I would say that actually, the human heart, the, the needs of the human heart and the human soul and the human spirit have never changed. No. So the human being will find ways right. to try, try to seek balance, like water. It's going to try to find its. You know, those human hearts have not been completely sickened. That reminds me. As a result, I think podcasting is yeah, man. It's about to. And we're only in the first inning of podcasting. Yeah, for sure. That's what I believe. And everything, yeah, and especially like. The medium of television where you had to sit and wait for a show to come on and you had to be at a specific time and you had to sit, it's, it's, it's over, yeah. It's way over. It's, over, like, yeah. no, it's like a beeper. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out how do we make people watch commercials because that's like, of course, yeah. That's, that's how they make the money. Like, like you mentioned, like the whole, all of television, it's Hollywood, a, it's all. It's an advertising platform. It's an advertising platform. That's it, bro. And people, and it's people know that. People forget. It's so bizarre just to, just to process this thought for a second. Like, you know, there are six media conglomerates. They control all the TV, all the TV studios, TV channels, all the film and film studios, basically all the you know home uh, home video you know, sub subsidiaries, all the um, book publishers, all the newspapers, all the magazines, all the book agents. All, I mean, sorry, the book publishing companies, all the billboard companies. So basically, six companies. Now, here's the thing. Those six companies. What is their product? What is it that they make money off? What do they sell? What do people buy and pay them for? Advertising. Television in particular. Their customers 
are advertisers, not people, not normal people. Their product is not the shows. Their product is ad space. That's what they sell. Mm -hmm. So they make all their money. The shows are completely incidental. Yeah, the shows are commercials for the ads. For the ads. The shows are, uh, the shows are commercials for... The shows are... are they're, they're not commercials, though. They're, they're like... They're, they're, the, they're the hook, man. They're the mm -hmm. trick. They're the, they're the show to get you in. To then show but you the But the main ad. show is the ad. Is the ad, saying. exactly. That's right. That's right. Like, That's right. That's right. I mean, probably probably nowhere is this more uh, grotesquely on display than the Super Bowl. Right? It's like, it's like the game is the sideshow. Yeah. And the people ad, are like, I'm going to watch for the commercials. Yeah. They have great commercials. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that's the only time in the year where it's most the truth of the whole medium is most blatantly yes. on display. This whole thing exists. Oh, take a knee. Blah, blah, blah. Like, dude... This whole thing is just a subsidiary of this larger game that is at play, which is what, which is the commodification of human attention. And even that, to that just goes to show, like, people know it. All right, every ad, every, like, commercial, every billboard, all this stuff that's every, every pop-up on your computer, it's constant, right? We, how, we see, what, thousands of ads a day when mm -hmm. you walk outside your house or when you sit at a screen inside Correct. your house. We all know that, but it still works mm -hmm. because it makes them money. Mm -hmm. Like they wouldn't. So people are tricked into purchasing things that they wouldn't have otherwise purchased. Mm -hmm. It's like dhikr of something. Mm -hmm. It's like constant dhikr. Creating false desires. It's just like if, but isn't that, that that's talking about the subconscious. Mm -hmm. If you just suggest something mm -hmm. enough, mm -hmm. people will. That's the essence of advertising, bro. What you're describing. Advertising, marketing, public relations. Like these fields. Because we know with our conscious mind, all right, this commercial right now. You know for a Big Mac. Yeah, 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 yeah. For a Big Mac, I know that there was it started off with like six dudes in like suits and ties sitting around a boardroom, right, right. like consulting the top, you know, Harvard psychologists, like what Sound should be playing when we show them the Big Mac <laughs> that will activate well, the pituitary gland and remind well, them see, of not, their childhood no, the urges. It's not, that, it's not that methodical, right? Because there are. This is the crazier thing, bro. The whole world of advertising is full of creatives. Yep. It would be like if you and I decided we're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out how to sell ads to people to, to, to yeah. represent big, gigantic, global Fortune 100 companies and make amazingly entertaining, musical, hilarious, you know, ads. With a dope punchline. With a dope punchline, <laughs> exactly. And just get multi-million. You and I could start an advertising agency tomorrow. And by the way, by the way, what's interesting to me is, given that we live in this system, this is the advertising-dominated world in which we are all living. Google, Facebook, you know, studio mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. Hollywood. This is the world we live in. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to hate on an artist who makes a choice because they can either make movies or independent films or short films or TV shows, or they can make commercials. They decide to go to work for a big advertising agency, and they try to use that medium of ads, right? Because there's people making some very creative, clever ads and inspiring ads and all that, and they decided that they want to put their talent on that. Like, personally, that's not my cup of tea. That's not the lane I'm going to be right. in. But, but I get it. I get it, yeah. And by the way, it's both. It's the, they call them, uh, I don't know if you know how much you know about advertising. I've learned a lot of this stuff recently, man. They're called copy editors, or sorry, copywriters. Copywriters, so those are the writers. People who would otherwise be writing screenplays 
and TV shows and books and what have you. Instead, they get hired, they pursue the career of being a copywriter, or they're called art directors. People who would otherwise be visual artists or you know, painters or, or pursue some other visual aspect of, of, of becoming a director, for example, directing films and TV shows. Mm-hmm. Instead, notice that a lot of great directors, when they're off on TV show, what do they do? They direct commercials. Mm-hmm. So it's the same skill set, man. It's the same people. And the talent that's required is the same. It's just that you're, they're putting it towards, and it's four agencies, man. Back to the same thing of you know, the consolidation of it all. It's just four gigantic advertising agencies that own all the subsidiaries that are controlling the world that we live in, man. Mm. It's a bizarre world we're living Super in. It's odd. very ajeeb, man. When you just see it for what it really is, and gerrymander is one of my, you know, do you know gerrymanders? He wrote the, he wrote this book in 1978 uh, called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. It's a dope book, dude. So he's still alive, by the way. Elderly guy now. And I actually always thought it was a fake name, gerrymander. I mean, yeah. turns out he's a real guy. So he was an advertising executive for years. Last five years as a name partner at his own firm in San Francisco. And, like, knows the TV and the ad business very well. Mm-hmm. Quit it all and wrote this book. And basically, you know, spells out why he believes that television just fundamentally is an irredeemable uh, medium because it just exists to deliver ads. It is, it is fundamentally inextricably linked to just the pushing a consumerist, you know, materialist global worldview and agenda on behalf of a handful of advertisers who work, you know, a few dozen major global advertisers work with four ad agencies mm-hmm. to deliver ads on the platforms of the media outlets of six entities. And that's the world that we're living in. They manufacture idols, bro. Mm-hmm. How does a face end up on a cover of a magazine and a cover of but a... But I do, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think you're right. Where Yeah, th- there is a lot of creativity, but I also think these big ad agencies, they employ people that understand the subconscious and they oh, understand yeah, yeah, the definitely. human mind because yes. I mean they understand like our basic like primal urges for like status and you know like mating hierarchies and like how for a man it's like okay if I am seen as more dominant you know like ancient times like the the role the role I have in the tribe gives me more access to females to make, to pass on my genetic material. Yes. So, you know what I mean? So then it's like, it's like Lexus, Mercedes, be the man, or whatever. So, like, dude's like, yeah, if I get that, like, you know what I mean? Yes. Then I'll, I'll yes. have status in yes. the society. Yes. And, like, for women, you know, like, the like biological, and, of course, we're more than just beasts, but we're also beasts. So for yes. women, it's like, you know, she's thinking about, you know, subconsciously, she's thinking about like, okay, what like my mate, you know, who can has a status in society. So my child, which I have this long term commitment to, nine months in the womb plus like at least twelve years, I have to be devoted. I want to be protected on a biological level while I give birth, nurse, and raise this child. So the best means of protection. Is a man who who is dominant in the in the society. A man who exactly, <laughs> which is a symbol of that, right? right? Because it's respect and it's prestige, and you know what I mean. Sure, sure. 
So, and it's like, and then, and then like, the, all the sexuality. Do like, you believe all that stuff though? What? Do you believe that's really what's going on there? I believe that it's real, but I don't believe it's the whole story because we right. all animals, but we also have ruh and we yes. have intellect and stuff like yes. that. But, but this stuff's real. I mean, like, like sexual urges for, for a man, like we're drawn to women with breasts and hips and like, you know, curves sure. and stuff like that. That indicates at a subconscious level, health and, and youth and vitality, right? A fertility, woman with like perky, perky breasts, not fertility. sagging ones. Fertility. You see what I'm saying? Exactly, because yeah. she's young. She can bear children. The That's wide right. hips, the, hips, she, yeah. the breasts, she can nurse children. Like it's not dudes are not thinking about that. Like, oh yes. man, she can nurse my baby. Like right. it's like, right. no. But on a subconscious level. And same with women being protect, you know, being drawn to men who are strong with like muscles and like this type of build. Because it has protection. to do with protection. Mm. You can protect my infant child while I nurse it, you know, for all these these years. So, yeah, that stuff's real, bro. I mm. mean, we're animals. Yeah, of course. I, we're, you know, Hayawana and that's it. We're not just animals. You sure, know? we're more than animals. But, yeah. No, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, when you start getting into all this, like, archetypal femininity, archetypal masculinity, to me, I'm immediately just like, this whole discourse is fundamentally under attack. Yeah. They would, they would dismiss a lot of what we're talking about as gender binary assumptions yeah. and the gender fluidity movement right. and the transgenderism movement today right. are fundamentally trying to sort of call into question and really, I would say, essentially constitute an assault on this whole worldview. Yeah, the, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and they... And I don't know how this ends. I think mean, back to chaos. I think that yeah. so long as epistemic... There is widespread epistemic crisis on Earth. People sure. don't know what, what, and what, that's what the essence of postmodernism is that all the stories, all the overarching narratives, are wrong. Correct. The only or- overarching narrative is that there are no overarching narratives. Correct. Subjective, complete subjectivity. Yes. Radical skepticism. Right. So, which is basically a type of nihilism or nihilism, which is basically you know, kind of the def- become the default. I heard you say something that relates to this on uh, I think it was a Diffuse Congruence podcast, and you mentioned that you felt like the comedians are kind of like the theologians of the day or the, yeah. you know, like they're, they're kind of like public intellectuals in a sense or public thinkers. Mm-hmm. Like they play a role. If you think, I always try to like think of things in like primal ancestral terms, but like, you know, they're, you, the comedians are exploring ideas and concepts and, and, and the meaning of life and all these type of things in ways that are funny. And I thought you, you said some interesting things about that. And how, but you also mentioned that the dominant comedians are like usually atheist, nihilist, kind of like, yes, what there's no purpose to this all, correct? And it just that's kind of like a dark humor associated with yes. it. Yes, it's like, like white magic more. and dark magic with black magic, we mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, same thing. It's almost like there's the same thing with comedy there's dark comedy and, and light comedy, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, some, so much of it comes down to intentionality. You know, one of the things that irks me the most, man, about the the cultural conversation around stand-up these days, which often, like, the most common time you'll see stand-up and the comments of a stand-up comedian kind of bubble up, bubble over and become a subject of, of the popular discourse in the news and in the, in the culture is when a comedian sort of gets in trouble yeah. for supposedly crossing some line, for sure. example, or being offensive, quote-unquote. Right. And I, put, I say all the way to quote-unquote because to me... Um, what all of those conversations 
every single one that I've seen so far, whether it's use of the N-word, whether it's, you, you know, attempt to do rape jokes, attempt to do abortion jokes, attempt to do trans jokes, attempt to do, you know, jokes about, you know, gay culture and gay subculture, um, a lot of jokes about race and, you know, gender and stuff like that. The, the, these are naturally sensitive, triggering subject matters. I get it. What often happens when you find a comedian, not always, but often happens when you find a comedian, quote unquote, getting in trouble for something they said, such as on Twitter or on, you know, a comment or even on a live show. Never have I seen in the aftermath a real and sincere conversation, in my judgment, about trying to ascertain the intent. Mm -hmm. What people are more willing to do is say, intent is irrelevant. You're not allowed to do X. You're not allowed to say Y. And while I understand sometimes where they're coming from, okay, I'm an empathetic person. I get where they're coming from. I think trying to critique speech, any speech, and I say this as a proponent of free speech, almost like not an absolute proponent, but I'm heavily influenced by free speech culture and First Amendment culture as a former attorney and a comedian. Like I and get, an American. And a goddamn American. Uh, the, 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 the importance of that truly as it being a cornerstone of a truly free society, an attempt to live and create a truly free society is absolutely an ingenious, an ingenious legal mechanism. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all for that. That being said, intent in lived reality and real human experience trumps everything. If your best friend you know, um, this is where the cliche, like, my best friend is black, comes from. So if your best friend is black, then you may have jokes that you do with your black friend if you're not black that is so intimate and the intent is known that it's cool between the two of you. But no, I'll take it out of that context. You don't have that license to do that. Sure. Well, that phenomenon, of, well, why do people even say that in the first place? Because it is also true, it is also real that intent is important. Never have I seen a comedian, you know what I mean, like be given the, the benefit of the doubt or have a real real investigation as to what was going on there. What do they mean by that? What's the real intent? It's almost, it's almost always like they say something, it gets, you know, it, it's deemed inflammatory, mm -hmm. it causes some controversy, and then they immediately are forced to sort of try to put out the fire by backing out, apologizing, blah, blah, blah. Because I think that this is a mistake, you know. We're not making space in our culture for satire, for, you know, more room for satire, for, 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 um, for irony, you know, for, for being sarcastic. Mm -hmm. and, and all of those are, are facets of it. Now, that being said, look, free speech should never be understood to mean you get to say whatever you want to say with no implication. Right. You can't incite violence. You can't fire in a crowded theater. Right. No, but not only that. I'm just like the black and white limits on free right. speech. I'm talking about this idea of like, oh, where's my free speech rights? You know, as if you should be able to say anything, no matter how inflammatory and offensive, and there should be no reaction, right? <laughs> the point of free speech is that, yeah, you have the right to say anything, and the people will respond, and they have the right to sure. respond however they want, so long as it's not violence. Right. And so... Yeah, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here. No, but that thing is important. And I think it's interesting that comedians in, in the modern, like the last few years, just particularly comedians who are mostly like left leaning yes. on the political spectrum are like on the forefront pushing back against this like 
PC culture, social justice warrior, yes. even though they, you know what I mean? Because yes. it's like, yes. it's funny because comedians yes. like yes. are like, we reserve the right to make fun of whatever. Yes. So like, like it, it's interesting. And, and what's interesting too is like, you know, yeah, like you see Berkeley, all these like right wing, like clowns, most of them who are like just their whole goal, Milo Yiannopoulos and yeah, stuff, yeah. like their whole goal is to just get a rise. Yeah, people. they're just cultural trolls. And these fools on the left, like go and like tear stuff up and go, you know what I mean? And like go, you know, like it's like start rise and stuff. It's just like you're just giving this dude exactly what he wants, which is attention. Yes. Like he's just a marketing machine. Like yes. he's just an advertiser. Like he's like, what yes. will get the best? you know, the most clicks on my whatever. And again, yeah, there's there seems to be this loss, this of, of idea of conversation where we can actually discuss issues. It's just like lowest common Back to reductionism, yeah. yeah. We live in a reductionist culture of reductionist messaging, you know. The modern, and there's world, the a modern way, world is waging a war on nuance. And I think the idea that you can never tell a joke about, you know, abortion or... You know, these type of things, which is a touchy subject, no doubt. But, like, I thought Louis C.K., how he opened his most recent special on abortion. Yeah. Like, I thought that was really nuanced, actually, what he did. Because yes. he goes, it's either killing a baby or whatever. You know what I mean? And he was, like, talking about people picketing. And he goes, you know, he goes, of course, they think it's killing a baby. <laughs> like, like and you're mad at them for picketing? Like, that was dope. Like, he's yes, really, like, bringing right. out, like, yes. it's either... You know, like defecating, like, oh, no big deal. It's just like removing yeah. some bodily function. Yeah. Or it's killing a baby. Yeah. And so those are very different paradigms. Correct. And if you hold one of them, you should understand why the other is going to come to a different conclusion than you. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And so I think like that's okay. Some people would say you shouldn't joke about abortion. But I think he actually was making a profound point that, that like helps elucidate or illuminate some of the conversation. It like helps you reflect on it in a deeper way. You know yes. Mean? Yes. But the other thing... The comedians, this was a branch of comedians being sort of this, these theologians, modern, yes, yes, modern philosophers, basically. You know, that, that, that was just been my observation is that, you know, if it is true, and I think it is, that every age in human civilization, human, recorded human history, has had some discernible philosophical underpinnings, then it is no secret that the age we're in right now is basically a scientism-driven, materialism-driven, um, you know, sort of um, uh, skeptic skepticism-fueled, right. almost like border, agnostic, borderline, outright atheistic age. And uh, I think I've, you know, if you heard that podcast, I think I talked about before that, and I know that you're, you know, knowledgeable about the writings of the of the so-called perennialist school, mm. but they, they spend a fair amount of time talking about you know the distinction between capital T traditionalism and capital M modernism. So my point in all this is to say that modernism, capital M modernism, the philosophical school that it has as its starting point that what we take to be real is material reality. And what we take to be, you know, the domain of philosophical inquiry is whether there's a God and meaning and a soul and blah, blah, blah. They've got it exactly inverted. 
you know, for traditional human beings, and that was the case for all of human civilization, across all of human culture and societies, across all of human history, was the exact opposite starting point. Like, yo, of course there's a God, of course there's a higher power, of course there's a, you know, a, a greater world beyond this physical space and matter, and the real philosophical question is, is this really happening? Mm -hmm. Are we in the matrix? Are we in the simulation? <laughs> That, that Elon Musk believes we're in, or they were already talking about this, right? So I think that the comedians being the so-called theologians or the philosophers of the day is, that, is simply to say that they are the ones who are most explicitly articulating through their jokes and their work today this modernistic worldview, giving illustration after illustration, example after example of how the world is sort of caught in this, in this worldview. And and the, the and, and the most notably when they talk about religion, when they talk about God, when they talk about you know atheism and and um, you know critique quote unquote again religion, and they have a point you know fake religion man. The, one of the amazing things to me about Islam in particular among the world religions, and I'm not not I'm not a scholar of religion by any means. I'm not an extensive mm -hmm. I'm not extensively studied in, in other wisdom traditions, but I will say this. It is absolutely clear to me that Islam stands unique among global world religions, quote unquote, because it has within its own methodological structure and pedagogical framework of how to preserve its own distilled authentic teachings and a built-in mechanism that acknowledges fake religion, made-up bullshit, which we call bid'ah. Bid'ah in Islamic law is basically the economic acknowledgement. Like, yo, there's going to be some bullshit that creeps up. People do this. They've always done this. They're going to do this. The job of the real scholars and the saints and the people who care about preserving true mystical, spiritual wisdom teaching from the messenger of God bear the responsibility to, from time to time, pare away all the weeds right. and cut out all the BS. Mm -hmm. That is an incredible acknowledgement of and, a religion and about the, the nature Prophet of religion. And said that there will be a mujeddid, a every reviver in every hundred years, which every means hundred every hundred years, a lot of people lose the plot. So somebody needs to revive that joint. Exactly right. You know what I mean? Exactly this idea right. and like... And the importance of converts in the history mm -hmm. of Islam for this exact reason. Mm -hmm. A view it's, from the edge, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know about this, uh, what's his name? Um... Richard Bullitt, The Case yep, for Islam of Civilization. Yeah. He wrote that one as well. What's yeah. it called? A View from the Edge. A View from the Edge. Which is, is about that, how like... Phenomenon, yeah. The, the, from the Edge, the new converts come. Yeah. They overwhelm basically the center, which tends to get stultified exactly. and reified and gets just, you know, all this... Which is interesting. You see, creeps in. You see like not... Like not only the like worldly power, that's one thing, but like the kind of like intellectual and spiritual like... Uh, and literary scholarly dominance uh, within the Islamic world passes from the Arabs very quick mm -hmm. to the Persians. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes, you know, and then it goes to the Turks. It goes to the Indians. It goes to the Persians. The, yeah. You know, West the Spanish. The Spanish. Okay, let's talk That's about right. Europe. The, yeah, the Africa, Incredible, North yeah. Africa, West Africa, East Africa. You know, Hadramaut, Southeast. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's crazy. It's like, incredible. Yeah. So the fact that the the potato, it's a hot potato, man. The fact that it's being in front of our eyes, passed on to the West, quote unquote, right. that is precisely what is at the heart of all this tension and so-called clash of civilizations. You know, I, I, I would say the clash of civilizations theory, forwarded by Samuel Huntington, mm -hmm. is an interesting theory. But the lived reality is not a clash of civilizations, but rather a synthesis of cultures.
that's actually what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of like, oh, Muslims in Europe, why can't they indigenize? Why can't they be? It's like, dude, the mayor of London is a Muslim. What the hell are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 10% of London is Muslim, are Muslims right now. Muhammad is the most popular name in the UK. Curry is the official dish. Is the official dish, exactly. But, you yeah. know, I mean, this... And, and that's not to completely dismiss. That's, you know, the, right. uh, I think that the truth is always kind of like in the middle. Sure. You know, you could take an extreme view on anything, but the truth is in the middle. You know, is there a clash? Completely no. Is there a total synthesis? No. Mm-hmm. What's happening is a very organic process of mutual acculturation, you know? Uh, identities being negotiated in real time in the real world. I, I would say that, you know... Our experience is, as American Muslims in this particular time that we're in is, you know, about the most interesting kind of cultural unfoldment happening on the planet. And in many ways may or may not carry the key and the secret to unlock a continuation of the species. Otherwise, we could be looking at a very quick burnout here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because so much... Of the technology, of the science-driven tech in our world today is as amazing as it is, as marvelous as it is, as mind-bending as it is, mm-hmm. is sadly ungrounded. It's untethered. You know, it's not grounded in capital T truth. And in that sense, it's dangerous and in many ways yeah, suicidal. Yeah, that's one of the things that yeah we forget. It's like Dr. Omar said at this retreat, like ideas have consequences. Like ideas have conscious consequences, and what you believe about the nature of reality affects how you interface with quote unquote reality. Mm-hmm. What you believe about uh, the creation of the cosmos affects how you're going to interact with the planet Earth. Like, whether you believe that, that, you know, trees and fish and all these things are, you know, commodities to f- fulfill our needs, or whether they're living uh, loci of the manifestation of divine names Allah, to be, you know, respected, respected. with rights that are living, that have Correct. a portion of consciousness themselves. It's like... That's going to affect how you interface with the with the world. Of course, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. it's no... People think, oh, the only reason that we're destroying the earth now and not before is because they didn't have the technology. It's like, no, maybe they didn't have the technology because they didn't look at the world through the same paradigm. Correct. You know what I mean? They Correct. didn't have the same underpinnings. Yes. Yes. No. Mashallah. Um, yeah, I mean, these, some of these topics are obviously never-ending, right? Oceanic subjects. But, but you know, com- comedy to me ultimately is you know, a beautiful art form. Mm. I love stand-up as a specific, you know, art form or craft. I think it's just a really amazing medium, you know, a genre of communication. And, uh, and I've fallen increasingly in love with it the longer I've been doing it, you know. And the more great comics I've, I've had the chance to learn from and watch and really study, you know, it's just made me more and more passionate about, like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to find my lane, you know, mm-hmm. and figure out how I want to do this thing? I, I still don't know. I'm not going to front and be like, I feel like I've got it all worked out. I feel like I'm very much a work in progress.
progress. Mm. I feel like my stand-up has definitely gotten gotten more authentic over time. I would say it's probably in the best place it's been. Um, in some ways, I kind of long to go back to being as free and, uncom- and, and, and comfortable as it was in the very beginning. You know, it was like this weird relationship between um, natural ability and skill that you work, that you develop by working on, mm-hmm. you know, you know, refining your talent. Mm-hmm. So there's raw talent on the, on the one hand, there's refined skill on the other. And there's this weird, you know, thing that happens, I think, for in any field where if you have a lot of good, raw, just original talent, organic talent, there's some stuff you'll do early on that you can't even explain how and yes. how you were able to do it. But then the more you learn the technical craft of it at all, it almost becomes difficult to ever access again that mm-hmm. organic talent until you've kind of come out on the other end. Mm-hmm. And that process can take a lifetime, you know? Right. Like so, beginner's mind. Yeah, man. Trying to cultivate beginner's mind. Beginner's yeah. mind, is that what it's called? Yeah, they talk about is that. that. Like the it, Buddhists talk the about that and stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You you hear it in different things, but I think, and it's like archery too, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, the flow. Yeah. I've heard it as a baseball example, you know, the mm-hmm. swinging a bat, like a great baseball player as a kid just has this free swing that is just like picture perfect. And then spends twenty years trying to master the craft of the game to eventually be able to one day swing as freely right. as he did when he was six years old. Which know? is, I mean, it's similar to like the idea of okay, so, you know, I don't know everyone's path to comedy. I'm sure is different, but I think it would probably be like a pretty archetypal path that you're the funny kid in school. You make everybody laugh, and people are like, "You're funny, dude!" You sh-, and you realize, "Oh, this is my thing." Like, I may not be the fastest or the strongest or the best with girls, but I'm funny, dude. And that, like, you know what I mean? Like, people, you know what I mean? So then you <laughs> cultivate that, and then you know, people are like, "Dude, you you should be a comedian. You're funny," and you're like, "Oh, maybe I could do that." So then you're just naturally funny. There's certain people that they're just hilarious. Like it, they that's it. that's they got that. Like it's a gift. And then, but imagine you're that dude, and then you're like, okay, I could be a comedian. You stand up on stage, like, for sure you're going to bomb. Because, (laughs) one, like, you're naturally funny, but you're in a totally unnatural setting. Now, you're just standing with just people staring at you and a microphone and lights in your eyeballs, and you're like... And the worst part about the setup is there's an expectation of laughter. Exactly. See, one of the things that a funny person has going for them without an off stage is just that there's no expectation for them to be funny. There's mm-hmm. no pressure on them to be funny. Right. They're just being funny because they're engaging their clown and they're having fun. Right. You know? And the moment that con- the context is switched up and it's like, oh, now we're going to stand you in front of a room, in front of a microphone with lights on you, and everybody's sitting in the room quietly waiting for you to hear what you have to say because you're supposed to make them laugh. Right. Not a lot of beginners can deliver under those circumstances. Right. If you can, you're a natural, and you can you'll probably progress very quickly. Right. If you can do it consistently. But it seems like the goal, which takes discipline and time, probably months and and years, is to get to a place where you're as comfortable on stage Correct. as you are when you're just. Chilling with your boys in the schoolyard, making people laugh. So it's like you have to cultivate that beginner's mind. That you have to get back to naturalness. Correct. In an unnatural setting. That's right. In fact, they say that you know the goal is to eventually be as comfortable in front of you know fifty thousand people in a stadium 
on stage as you are in front of 5,000 in a theater, as, as you are in front of 500 in a club, as comfortable as you are in front of five people in a living room. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no difference. Making five people laugh in the living room, or you're making 50,000 laugh in a stadium, nothing changes. Maybe the performance is amped up a little bit for a big, you know, stadium crowd and this jumbotron. So you're going to have to make some adjustments in terms of performance and delivery and timing and sound considerations, blah, blah, blah. But the level of the, the ener- energetically, right. what you're bringing you're to the you. stage, how comfortable you are, how confident you are. They're like, yo, I got jokes. I know this stuff works. I know it's hilarious, and I know I'm hilarious. So, and that's a you can't that must be a lot of it because I mean you have to have confidence, but you also have to deliver. But what's a trip about any type of performance is. If when you're on, when you're killing, when you're winning, when you're, you know, crushing it, people are giving you control of their mind and saying, okay, I'll be like a passenger in this. Like, just drive. You know what I mean? Yes. And then you, and when you're winning, like, they're like, we, this is fun. Like, I'm yes. on your ride, dude. Yes. And you're killing. Yes. And like, this yes. is fun. This but, is so fun. But when you like make a wrong turn crush, and they're like, oh, I want to get out. And then you lost, like you, yes. like just you in that the moment. You lose the crowd, yeah. But when you're on, it's it's, it's like magical. I mean, it, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, of course. That's, it's like that's that's the drug that every every entertainer is kind of chasing. I think, in a sense, right? Yeah. The perform every performer is chasing is especially for live performance, right? There's there's nothing like that experience. As as everybody who does the thing that we do knows, you know. There's just no substitute. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and seen by more people and then lastly you can support financially on patreon patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content and we have a path and present page on patreon the link is on our soundcloud page soundcloud slash path and present and you'll find the patreon link there and yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love.